Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Happy Thanksgiving to uh, our American listeners. And if you're not here in the U.S., sending you just my usual love. We have a great episode this week. Thubton Chodron. She is, uh, don't, don't, don't be fooled by the serious-sounding Tibetan uh, nun name. Uh, she is very serious. She's written a bunch of books on Buddhist philosophy and practice, including co-authoring some books with the Dalai Lama. But she's also really self-deprecating and really down-to-earth. She was uh, born in Chicago, raised in L.A., was a teacher, um, and was happily married uh, 43 years ago when she decided to become a nun. And has gone off and now teaches all over the world and has written some of the uh, books that I've already mentioned. She's also written a book about eating and sharing meals in a Buddhist and mindful spirit. It's called The Compassionate Kitchen. We spend a lot of time here talking about her life as a nun, but we also talk about big issues, including what is your motivation? We are all operating. These are questions we don't like to ask ourselves, many of us. We're all operating often on these sort of unacknowledged scripts and habit patterns. But what's what's actually driving us and can you work with that? Uh, she got me thinking a lot about that issue. Another question she poses is, what is enough? Another thing that I think a lot of people don't wrestle with, but is it's a fascinating thing to do. And then toward the end here in this chat, we talk about her book, The Compassionate Kitchen. So much here. Uh, so here we go. Here's Thipton Children. How often do you set motivations... And why? Well, the why is because our motivation is the most important aspect of whatever we do. It's not what we do that makes something worthwhile or um, wholesome. It's our motivation for doing it. And since our motivations uh, as ordinary beings are usually self-centered – and thinking about how can I benefit from this, then, uh, you know, as a Buddhist practitioner, I try, you know, before I start things, to uh, generate a positive motivation and think, you know, long-term, not just, oh, my pleasure this life and, oh, I'm coming to be interviewed by Dan Harris and now I'll be famous. <laughs> it's like, forget that. And I don't want to have that kind of motivation. Okay? So to, to really um, stop and get in touch with what's important in my life. So uh, I do it when I first wake up in the morning. Um, at the monastery where I live, we have, uh, after breakfast, we have a short meeting. We do it there before all of our teachings, before all of our meditation sessions, before we eat lunch, all throughout the day, we, we pause and just come back to our motivation. I love this. I'm actually very interested in the issue of motivation. Do you nonetheless, notwithstanding all of the motivation setting you just described that's uh, uh, woven into the fabric of your day, do you nonetheless notice occasionally self-interest creeping in? Occasionally. <laughs> Come on. It's like all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the way we are. I mean, who do we think about all day long? Me, me, me. Who do we dream about all day long? Me, me, me. You know, when we wake up in the morning, do we think about, 
oh, how are other living beings? What's their experience? Are they suffering? Are they happy? How can I benefit? We don't think about anything, you know, like that. We wake up in the morning and it's like, okay, where's my coffee? And that's what gets us out of bed. And that's like, you know, who wants to go through your life with that as a motivation, just seeking, uh, you know, sense pleasure and reputation and all of that. So, you know, my natural way is to go after all that stuff. I'm an ordinary being. But it's like, you know, if you're going to have a spiritual life, you have to start counteracting that kind of motivation. But is is that kind of self-interest? Let me just say, the, the self-interest that you're describing as normal, uh-huh. um, I experience that in my mind. That sounds like a, a, a mild description of what's happening for me. But is that really true for everybody? I was thinking about my wife for a second. I'm not uh-huh. in my wife's mind. But uh-huh. just judging by her behavior, I think she may wake up in the morning worrying about our four-year-old son or mm-hmm. her dad who's had some health issues. I mean, is it is that true for for – is that really true for most people, that kind of nonstop me, me, me? I think it is, you know. And then we do think about other people, but it's usually the people we care about. If we think about the people we don't like, well, we think about them. <laughs> but, you know, what's our motivation towards them? May they get hit by a truck. Yes, complete destruction. Yeah. So, uh, so again, it's like... I remember at the first course I went to, my teacher said, if you help your friends and harm your enemies, that's not any better than a dog because it does what a dog does, you know, helps their friends, bites the enemies. And he was saying, you know, if you want to be really human and really take advantage of our human potential, then we have to counteract that and really open our heart to want to benefit all living beings, whether we like them or not, whether we know them or not. So if we wake up in the morning thinking about the well-being of of the people we love, that's Mm -hmm. just an expansion of the ego. Basically. It's good. At least we're not thinking about ourselves, you know. And it's good to think about others that we're fond of. But it's good to even go beyond that. Yeah. And when I say, like, just thinking about ourselves and being self centered, it's a certain kind. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of ourselves. I'm not saying that. Okay. There's a healthy way to take care of ourselves and a way to take care of ourselves with a good motivation. And then there's our usual (laughs) MO of, you know, how can I get something out of this? Yeah, be it, ple- you know, immediate pleasure or praise and approval, reputation, possessions, money, status. Yeah, so to, you know, that's the self-centeredness that we want to let go of. But we do need to take care of ourselves in, in a healthy and realistic way. But doesn't what you just described lead to... If I, if I were to port that attitude into my life, wouldn't that lead to me being in robes? In other words, I would think about the <laughs> basic necessities, but I wouldn't be trying to build a, uh, you know, 
build a big company as I'm trying to do or mm-hmm. or uh, b- grow the audience of this podcast, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. There's, it, you can do those things that you're describing, but with a different motivation. In other words, self-centeredness doesn't have to be the motivation. If you're doing a podcast and you're having guests come in, you know, and you think may uh, through these conversations and the you know the wisdom that these people talk about may that in influence all the people who hear the podcast in a beneficial way so that they can become kinder people so as i seek to grow the audience of the podcast i shouldn't be doing it because it will you know be bragging rights or whatever it is that it, that's right. no enhancement that's at stake there it's more like can i help other people exactly Exactly. Because, you know, you can make a ton of money from doing this and your name can be all over, you know, Lights wherever. Yes. Yeah. And when I like you, that idea. Yeah. You like that? <laughs> Great. But when you die, what happens? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. It's, all, it's all gone. Yeah. It's yeah. all gone. You know, and when you go into your, your next life, none of that stuff comes with you. How do you, you know there's know? a next life? It makes sense. You know, when you think about logically that everything that functions has a cause, things don't come out of nowhere. So if you look at our consciousness, each moment of mind had the the principal cause was the preceding moment of mind. So you trace that back to conception. Where did that first moment of mind come from? Yeah, it didn't come from the body because the body's nature is atoms and molecules. The mind's nature is not physical in any way. So the only thing, you know, if if each preceding, if each moment of mind had a preceding moment of mind that was its cause, then also the first moment of mind in this life had a preceding moment. Is your uh, evangelizing on behalf of, and that's my term, not yours, on behalf of (laughs) compassion... Mm-hmm. In any way wedded to or dependent upon this belief in rebirth? Oh, yes. It is? Yes. So, But what if I – I have seen no evidence for rebirth, although your case carries some uh, uh, um, uh, gravity for me. Carries gravity. That's, that's probably not yeah. the right way to say it. <laughs> uh, it carries some weight for me, but um, – I don't really – I can't – I'm not going to pound the table and say karma and rebirth are, are – I can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Does that mean that I, I'm, I'm, I'm incorrigible when it comes to no, compassion? No, you can still cultivate compassion, yeah. But when you have a perspective of multiple lifetimes, it really changes the, the way you have compassion and the reach of your compassion and what you have compassion for. Why? Yeah. Okay. Usually in our society, when we say uh, compassion for living beings suffering, people think of the ouch kind of suffering. You know, I have kidney disease. I have cancer. um, You know, I stub my toe. Physical suffering or mental suffering, which in the West we have, I think, much more of than physical suffering. You know, my relationships aren't going well. I lost my job. I'm depressed. I, you know, all this, you know, mental stuff too. We usually think of what regular people identify as suffering that everybody knows, okay? 
but in Buddhism, and I'm speaking as a Buddhist here, you know, and but it's not, it's on my own beliefs, you know. Um, in Buddhism, we're seeing that's not, that's one level of unsatisfactory experience. But there's other levels too, yeah. Like another level of unsatisfactory experience is that whatever gives us pleasure, if we keep doing it again and again, it stops giving us pleasure. Yeah? When you're hungry, you eat, it gives you pleasure. If you keep eating, you get a stomachache. So it's like the things that give us pleasure are not pleasurable in their own nature. You have to do it in a certain manner, in a certain way, a certain limit, because if you keep doing it, you know, like you fall in love and like that person is marvelous. I always want to be with them. But if you're with them day after day, chained to them 24-7, what happens? I've never had that experience, but I imagine <laughs> it would be unpleasant. Yeah. So, so that's another level, okay, of unsatisfactory experience. And then an even deeper level is the fact that we have a body and mind the way we do that basically are not in our control. Yeah, from a Buddhist viewpoint, we say they're under the influence of afflictions and karma. And so this is why we want to be free from this situation and why the, there's the importance of having a path to that freedom, to attain awakening. Because, uh, you know, as long as we're born in a body that has this nature, it's kind of... You know, the moment you're born, you're, you start aging and start going towards death. Yeah? And so when we think that, you know, what's behind this, it's, it's our ignorance and our afflictions and our karma because we do so much negativity, you know, trying to be happy. And yet, you know, the nature of our mind is something pure and clear, and we have the potential to to cultivate love and compassion for everybody equally, okay, without bias, without, well, I'll have compassion for you as long as you're nice to me, but just have a totally open heart that, that wants to give because that's the way to do things, you know, and we have the potential to to realize the ultimate nature of reality and to free our mind from this ignorance and afflictions and karma. So we have this amazing human potential, and we don't use it. And that's the tragedy, you know. That's the tragedy. We're running around like chickens without our head, you know. For what? You know, I'm wasting that potential. And so you to get back to the question you asked me of you know just believing in rebirth change how I have compassion it yeah it does because I look now and it's not just the out kind of compassion that that I uh, the out kind of suffering <laughs> sorry that I have compassion for I try and think of the the compassion that you know what sentient beings are doing 
doesn't bring them ultimate happiness and that they have potential and they're not using it, you know, and, and to cultivate compassion for that. So that, that really changes the nature of the compassion. But what you're describing right there doesn't seem contingent upon rebirth. I th- it, it is because we keep getting reborn under the influence of our ignorance and affliction. I see. I see. Because it's conditioned the next life. Yes. Um, because I, another thing, I, an argument that I'd heard, I believe I've heard made by folks in, in the Tibetan tradition that I thought you were going to say is <laughs> if, if we're in this endless cycle of uh, rebirth, mm-hmm. at some point – even the the uh, the guy I hate over there might have been my mother. Right. Yeah. There's that too. Yeah. There's that, that they've all been kind to us in this life or previous lives and will be kind to us in, in future lives. So you have compassion on that basis. But, you know, you also have compassion just realizing that everybody's exactly like me wanting happiness and not suffering. And there's no difference between us. And so on that basis, how can I really look out only for my own happiness and work to cure only my own suffering? Let me say a bunch of words so that I can give you enough time to to take a sip of that water that you're eyeing me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm going to compassionately buy you some time. Oh, thank you. But but this is such an interesting question because um, you – it does cut against the grain of our habitual way of being, which mm. is, you know, out for ourselves. Well, I'll just speak for myself, out for myself. Um, so how do we operationalize your advice? You know, would you would you recommend that we're setting motivations with some regularity and repetition uh, uh, throughout the day? Right, right when we wake up in the morning, right before we go into a meeting, what would that look like? What kind of meditation will we practice to help our uh, help us escape from what the author David Foster Wallace has described as a skull-sized kingdom, uh, which I really like, uh, to escape from this, the, or what the Dalai Lama has called self-cherishing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so talk talk about how we can put into practice what you're describing. Okay. Now that you're it, it's quenched. not difficult. It's not difficult. First of all, when you first wake up in the morning, before you even get out of bed. Yeah. What I do is I I set my motivation for the day. So I say to myself, first of all, what's the most important thing that I'm going to do today? Yeah. Most important thing is not to harm anybody. Everything else on my uh, calendar and all my appointments and this and that and the other thing, that's secondary. Most important thing today is not to harm anybody. Another most important thing, there's more than one most important, is to benefit others as much as I can in whatever big or small way I'm capable of. And third is to cultivate that motivation, that long-term motivation. We call it bodhicitta, the awakening mind. Yeah, The mind that aspires uh, for full awakening so that we can really uh, be of the greatest and most effective effective benefit to others. So I set that motivation right when I wake up in the morning. Yeah. And then um, at the at the monastery where I live, we have little things on our bathroom window. Um, yeah, so instead of, you know, well, how do I look? But uh, 
you know, just certain sayings from some of our teachers to remind us of how we want to be that day. This is on your bathroom mirror? Yeah. What, uh, does having a shaved head help? Because <laughs> you're not fixing your hair. No. Yeah, you don't look in the, you, you just look in, in the mirror maybe when you're brushing your teeth, but uh, you don't have to worry about your hair. Yeah, I've heard Yule Brenner describe that uh-huh. heady vanities went away when he shaved his head. Yeah. Yeah, I believe. I mean, I've had a shaved head now for 42 years, so it's just kind of how it is. But, um, yeah, it's very nice. And people recognize me when they pick me up at the airport. (laughs) Well, the robes help uh, as well, I would imagine. (laughs) The robes and the hair. But the the petty vanities are still there? Um, We have... I mean, I have to be truthful. Yeah, there's a lot of conditioning in that direction. So when I notice them arising, then I think of an aspect of the Buddha's teachings that helps me counteract that. Mm. Okay? So if I all of a sudden, uh, you know, I just turned 69, and it's like it's beginning to dawn on me that other people see me as an old person. Not to inflame your yeah. petty vanities, but you don't look like you're 69. Oh, okay. Um, I don't feel like I'm 69, you know? I, I feel like, yeah, there's some aches and pains coming, and, you know, <laughs> that stuff is happening. But, uh, you know, I think, oh, other people may see me that way, but I don't feel that way. And I don't have to put myself into a pigeonhole of thinking, oh, I have to act like I'm 69. Because I actually feel, you know, and this is a delusion, like I have a long time to live. <laughs> and it's beginning on dawn on me. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah, you don't. This machine is going to, uh, you know, it's going to break. And... Uh, and so you have to be prepared for that. Yeah. And so if I see some kind of petty vanity like that coming, and then I think, okay, as I age, how do I want to be? I want to be a nice old person. I want to be a gracious, easy to get along with person. You know, I don't want to complain. I absolutely do not want to be bitter. And I do not want to carry any grudges against anybody. Yeah? And I certainly don't want to care about how I look because, you know, what does it matter? I mean, when you ordain, you stop caring about how you look. When you ordain as a nun. Yeah. You know, there's still the thought, oh, how do I look? But you know that, hey, you know, Nobody's going to be attracted to you because of how you look. And also, you know, yeah, you shave your head. Why? Because if I'm going to have friends, I want them to see inner beauty. I don't want them to see external beauty. Because if people like you for external beauty, it's not going to last long, is it? Yeah, if you cultivate internal beauty, then that keeps building and building and building. And then the people that you're close to, you know it's genuine friendship. Yeah? 
Yeah, I can see. I can see how that would be to use a loaded word, attractive. Yeah. Um, how did you? How and why did you did you decide to take what seems to be a pretty big step, which is to become a nun? <laughs> yes. Well, if you had asked me that when I was younger, I would have told them that a nun was the last thing I would ever be. You know, it was just not in my. Uh, in my framework, you know, I had a lot of spiritual questions, but uh, you know, being a nun, I grew up Jewish, so you know, Catholic nuns and stuff like that—that that was, you know, that wasn't anything familiar to to me at all. Um, I I was always wondering what's the purpose of my life, and uh, as a kid, going around asking different um, spiritual leaders and religious people, and none of them could give me an answer that made sense to me. You know, the, the, they make sense to other people, and that's good. It benefits them, but it didn't make any sense to me. Uh, so then I did what most people did in the 60s and early 70s, and... Uh, I went into education as a career because I figured that I, I had a feeling that part of my life, the purpose of my life, had to do with benefiting others. You know, so I thought education's a good way to do that. We should. I should just to ground people geographically. This is all playing out in Los Angeles, if I yeah. recall correctly. Yeah, you grew up there, went to UCLA, yeah, and then went into teaching in the public schools in LA. Yeah, yeah. My first job was in the inner city schools, and. Uh, and so I taught for about a year and a half, and then there was uh, a summer vacation, nothing to do, and I saw a flyer about a meditation course. This was 1975, and it was taught by two Tibetan lamas, and I said, okay, let's go. So I went, and that was it. What, what about <laughs> it made it it? Well... First of all, one of the first things they said was, you don't have to believe anything we say. You're intelligent. You think for yourself. You make up your own mind. I said, that's good. Now I'll listen. Because I was tired of people telling me the truth with a capital T. And these people were like, no, we'll just say it. You can believe it or not. You check it out. So I did. And one of the the things that really – there were several things that really touched me. One of them was this whole thing about motivation, you know, because I thought I was a really good person, yeah? But when I started looking at why I did the things I did and I started being honest with myself, I realized, you know, I was pretty selfish, you know, and just looking out for myself. And, and and yet, sorry to interrupt, but and yet you had the sense that your life was to be of benefit and you were teaching in inner city schools. That doesn't sound like a case of overweening selfishness to me. You know, you can be a mixture of many different things. You contain multitudes. Huh? I mean, look, we we have part one day we're angry, the next day we're loving. Yeah, one day we're greedy, the next day we aren't. We are a, a, a mass of 
contradictory mental states. <laughs> yeah? So that's what I started to see. And I, I had my ethical standards, but I mostly applied them to other people. <laughs> and they shouldn't lie, and they shouldn't cheat, and they shouldn't, and they should. But if I lie, there was a purpose to it. It was to prevent hurting somebody, you see. Actually, of course, it's to cover up something I did that I don't want somebody to know about because they'll be angry. But I couch it in, well, I'm doing it for their benefit. Yeah, which is garbage. Yeah. So I started really looking at my mind and seeing how my mind operated and um, seeing the contradictions in my own ethical standards and said, you know, I, I better do something about this. I really need to do something because I don't want to continue to be this kind of person. And then, of course, when the teachers started speaking about um, generating love and compassion, Buddhist style, for all living beings and being of benefit to all living beings, I thought, wow, that sounds really good. That's what I'd like to do. Of course, it takes eons and eons and eons, but and I'm not going to accomplish it, you know, by Tuesday. But <laughs> it it gives a meaning and purpose uh, to my life that you know because I know the direction I'm going in in the long term is something that's going to benefit myself and others, and it's going to extend over many lifetimes, and so. Having that kind of motivation, a byproduct of it is when you hit bumps in the road in your own life, they're not so big because you're focused on your long-term goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah? It's like the most renewable fuel. Yeah. It burns clean. Definitely. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's weird because... I've been thinking a lot about how to frame compassion or concern for friendliness toward other people in a fresh way in the writing of this book that I'm doing. And, uh -huh. and it's simultaneously like the ultimate life hack. And it's also annoyingly obvious and <laughs> annoyingly uh, just annoying to be told to get out of your own head in some ways and care about other people because we're told that – Often the, the the messages having to do with compassion are delivered in a preachy way, yes. and so we don't we don't like it. Um, and yet, I, I completely, as sitting here with you, I'm thinking, okay, if I could reframe all of my motivations in terms of benefiting others, then every time I stumbled, I wouldn't take it so personally or care right. as much. Right, exactly, exactly, because you know where you're going in the long term is someplace worthwhile. And you expect to stumble, you know, and you expect to have roadblocks. And, and then when they come, yeah, and this, this is one of the things that really appealed me to, uh, in, in Buddhist, uh, especially in the Tibetan tradition about thought training, is there's ways to transform what we usually consider as bad situations 
into something that helps you on the path to awakening. For example? For example, okay. Um, this is one that I practice uh, <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, none of us like getting criticized. Mm. Yeah. We hate getting criticized. We get angry. We get hurt. We get defensive. We get aggressive. We get resentful. You know, it's like, how dare you criticize me? I don't have any faults. And even if I do, you're not supposed to notice. Okay? But, hey, we get criticized, don't we? Yeah? I look at my Twitter feed every day. (laughs) I don't have Twitter. It's the best way not to have to listen to that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we get criticized all the time. So one way to flip the situation, what I do is I say, oh, it's very good I got criticized. Because sometimes I get kind of arrogant and full of myself. And I think I'm better than other people. And here's somebody else tearing me down. And that is actually good for me. Because as a spiritual practitioner, being arrogant does not fit. You know, arrogance is one of those afflictions that's keeping me in this cycle Mm -hmm. and that makes me harm others. So here's somebody shaking down my arrogance and pulling me out of it. So that's good. Okay, it hurts my feelings, but that's okay. I can survive some hurt feelings. And, you know, it's good that I bring myself or somebody else helps bring me down a few notches. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So clearly these teachings spoke to you, and as you relate them, they speak to me too, so much so that even before I walked in this room, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the cultivation of compassion, writing a book about it, been trying to operationalize it in my own life, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm a bit of a tough case. I'll, I'll admit that from the beginning. And yet I am not tempted to shave my head, give up my possessions, and never have sex again, and, mm-hmm. and yet so, you did. And mm-hmm. So how, how did you decide to make that leap? Oh, okay. Uh, I wanted to to dedicate my life to this. 
I thought, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. So that's one factor. Another was I realized, because I was married when I met the Dharma. No kids. I was married to a very nice man. Happily married? Yeah, happily married. Very nice man. Um, I had good work. You know, I, it was everything was going well. And in, in a worldly sense, everything was fine. And and why did I do this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. <yeah, so laughs> that was the question I wanted to get back to your question. Why did I do this? Because I knew that I couldn't continue in that life situation and practice well. My attachment was too strong. You couldn't keep doing this and meditate and practice Buddhism uh, up to par because your attachments to the things in the world, including your husband and your career or whatever paintings you put up on the wall, et cetera, were too strong to, yeah. to do it the way you wanted to do it. Right. The situation was too uh, – yeah. There were too many things for me to grasp at with attachment, too many things I got angry at. Yeah. And what does I, this say about the rest of us? Can we can – does that know. mean we can't practice up to – no. No, I'm talking about myself as an individual. I'm I'm not saying that everybody should, you know, go down to the barber shop. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about my own inner experience, okay? And so when I was honest with myself, I knew, you know, I want to do this wholeheartedly and I just don't have the capability to do it in this situation. Yeah, so I thought, okay, I'm going to ordain How'd this go over with your nice husband? <laughs> uh, well, he became a Buddhist. He had become a Buddhist too. And he understood. Of course, he didn't like it at all. But he was incredibly kind. And I am grateful to him for, to this day because he did not guilt trip me. He did not try and hold me back. He understood the reasons why I was doing this, even though it was something that was painful for him. And I'm very grateful. You're still in touch with him? Yeah, we're still in touch. My mom introduced him to another woman. They're happily married with three kids. Huh. <laughs> I didn't expect that twist. No. <laughs> it's a crazy story. It's like she was being a Jewish mom on somebody else's behalf. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, because, I mean, she loved him. She thought he was great. And I was I – was, the the one who was messing everything up. How'd she feel about what you were doing? Oh, she didn't like it at all. My family didn't speak to me for a long time. Yeah, this was in the 70s. So nobody knew the Dalai Lama then. Yeah, so they thought I joined a call. You know, you're going off to India to live in a place where they don't even have flush toilets. You know, what did we do to the, to deserve this? So it was it was very difficult for them. Yeah. And you were hanging around with the Dalai Lama at this time? I know you still you 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 yeah. collaborate with him to this day, but yeah. did you come into his orbit in the 70s? Um I attended his teachings, but I didn't have the personal connection with him at that time. That happened later, sometime in the 80s. You know, because you go to His Holiness' teachings, there's thousands of people. Yeah. 
So he became one of my teachings, but teachers. But my other, the principal teachers I relied on didn't have at that time thousands of disciples. So, you know, for other things I relied on other teachers. So I met His Holiness at that time, but then I didn't get to know him personally until for a few years. Are women treated well in the Tibetan Buddhist uh, tradition? She's making a face. She's make, pulling a face. Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to be polite? Not truthful? in this podcast. <laughs> this, is, this is a safe place to be impolite. Um, as an individual with my teachers... By and large, I was treated very well, and I was respected for my intelligence. Not because I'm very intelligent, but respected in the way that you respect any living being, you know, for their intelligence. And uh, as Westerners, we had the same education for the women and the men. Okay, so that part was equal. I lived in the... Tibetan community for a long time, and nuns are not treated equal to the monks. And actually, they're even in many ways, the lay women have more status than the nuns do. Yeah, because the lay women do business. You know, I mean, they run their home, they do business, they operate the stores, and, and so on in Dharamsala. The nuns, when I went there in the 70s, were um, now the situation for the Tibetan nuns is much better due to His Holiness's kindness. Really, it's His Holiness that really has started to change things. But still, it's not a good situation. Is it kindness or just lack of hypocrisy? Because these guys hold themselves up as the beacons of compassion on planet Earth, and they weren't applying it omnidirectionally uh, in this life. That's what is very interesting to me is how sometimes you see – because we grew up in America where at least we were told everybody's equal. Of course, you live in American society. There's no equality here. Well, look, just look at the pay gap. Yeah, the pay gap, racism. You uh, know. I was just talking about men and women, but yeah, we're oh, yeah. going to get into racism, of course. Right, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and the pay graph with men and women, of course. But, uh, you know, in the Tibetan situation, uh, you know, you kind of grow up. Just it's unspoken that women are not as intelligent as the men. I had a friend who studied at the dialectic school, a male friend, who studied at the dialectic school in Dharamsala. And the teacher one day, he was telling me, uh, asked, you know, do you think women are uh, equal to men? And he told me all of the Tibetan monks in the class, who were young ones, said no. That he was the only one who said yes. Yeah. So it's part of the culture. It's quite patriarchal. And it's it's um, in certain aspects of Buddhism as well, I don't think the Buddha himself was patriarchal. But in the system, because religion is influenced by culture, 
then you have things coming in sometimes to the scriptures. Yeah, but didn't the Buddha's way. stepmother have to convince him to, to ordain the, women? And Yeah, that's the way the story goes. Yeah, but I wonder if the story goes that way in order to convince men that women are capable of attaining awakening. Because at the time of the Buddha, the women weren't even allowed out of the house. You were under the control first of your father, then your husband, then your son. Okay. You have to give birth to this little guy, change his diapers, and then do what he says? Yep. And in many ways, that culture is still there. You know, and you look at other countries in the world. It's, I mean, it's like that. And uh, not Buddhist countries, but, you know, countries of other religions, too. I mean, look, look at America in the 1950s. Yeah, my mom was a brilliant woman. Um, she could, she could have been a lawyer like, whoa, she was a housewife. Yeah, because women just didn't have careers at that time. So, uh, you know, this is, gets into the culture and then people don't even notice it. His holiness is aware of it. Yeah. But um, but most of of them aren't, and you know what's really shocking is the Western monks. Of all people, I would expect the Western monks to to not be discriminatory against the women, but there's that with them too. It's very surprising, and so it's not you know it's not. Uh, it comes out in many subtle kind of ways and many not so subtle ways too. Yeah. So. <laughs> Let me ask another question as it pertains to compassion and gender. Okay. You used the term before nice. You were talking about your aspiration to be a nice older person. Yeah. Um, I did not take that the wrong way, but. Um, okay. <laughs> but I. Well, well yeah, I'm not. I don't want to be a grumpy old person. Fair enough. I I, I took it, I think, in the spirit in which you intended it. Mm -hmm. However, I've spoken to enough women. I'm married to one. I have a lot of Mm -hmm. female colleagues and friends. I've spoken to a lot of women now about the issue of compassion. And nice can be a provocative term because Mm -hmm. of the way the culture sends messages that women should be nice, meaning shut up. Yeah. What's your view on all everything I just said? (laughs) I think it's true. And then how so then how should women view niceness in the, in given this context? I think nice for me nice means polite, cooperative, not being uh obnoxious. Yeah. It doesn't mean being Su- Susie Cream Cheese. Susie Cream You know, like and, and running and getting all the men coffee. And, you know, to me, that's what, not the meaning of nice. To me, nice means, uh, I mean, look at our civil discourse in this country right now. It is not nice. It is horrible. And it's detrimental. And it's harmful. And to me, speaking politely, speaking kindly, you know, being cooperative when you can, 
That's what I mean by nice. There's like a fierce niceness. You can be fierce. There's a fierce compassion. That I really believe in. Yeah. And there's a truthful kind of niceness. Right. You can communicate clearly without being impolite. You can compete without being cruel. There are ways to do all this without falling into the trap of doing what the culture is implicitly telling you. Right. And becoming like the people that you object against. You know, Mm. like if a woman objects against all these men, they're so aggressive and they're so this and they're so that. And then you try and imitate them because you think that's the only way you can do it in order to to get heard and and i think there's many there's different ways to get heard and there's different kinds of dignity to have you know that we don't have to be in somebody's face all the time to get heard let me just go back to this issue of, of motivation, which I'm so interested in. Mm-hmm. I'm just uh, – I'm going to ask a question from a truly selfish standpoint, which may <laughs> spoil the whole question. Um, <laughs> uh, so I just think about uh, – you didn't use this word, the pu- purity of motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about it in my own life. So I am – I uh, have a career in television news. I have this podcast. I have a, a meditation app. I write and sell books. So I want all of these things to be successful. If I were to – if it was possible – if it were possible for me to really work on my motivation so that I was you know, much, 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 much more oriented toward benefiting other people than myself, would I – do you think it would hinder my ability to reach people in the end? No. In other words, is some of that selfishness positive? Absolutely not. It would not hinder your ability. Absolutely not. In fact, I think when when you have a sincere good motivation, people take what you say seriously. When they know that you're there to make a buck, then you're just like everybody else who wants to make a buck. So the irony is I might end up making more bucks, but I wouldn't care so much about the bucks. <laughs> well, if you, I follow your advice. Yeah, you may or may not make a lot of bucks. That's not your aim. I write books All the royalties I get, which are not a lot, you know, you can't live off of that. But all the royalties go into a special account that I only use for Dharma purposes and being generous. Right. But you're a nun. Yeah. And I'm a guy who has a kid in private school and, uh, uh, you know, I I live in Manhattan and have to pay my rent. Um, Should I should I not care about money? I don't want to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. That's not my business. Okay, so should one not care about money? <laughs> I'm going to get you one way or the other. Money, you need money. I mean, if you're a layperson, you need money. Yeah, you know, you need to eat, you need to do all that stuff. Okay? But there's different motivations for making money, and there's different ways of handling your money. You know, you could buy your kid everything your kid wants or you could teach your child how to deal with frustration of not getting what they want. And you can teach your child how to be generous and how to give things. Yeah. So there's different ways to use your money. And also, you don't – your self-esteem doesn't depend on the amount of money you make. 
Yeah. I met one man who came to the Abbey to study with us, and he he um, was a former Army Ranger. And he told me that um, he saw in his marriage that he was loved more when he made more money. Hmm. And, of course, that hurt him a lot. So if, you know, if money isn't your currency for being a successful person, then you get money, you don't get money. You know, you you make do with what you have. It's okay. You don't need the best of everything. You don't need the most modern of everything. Yeah? And sometimes it's really freeing. Like, I don't have... A smartphone, maybe the only person in the country. Yeah. And you seem fine. Uh, yeah, I'm fine. Can you believe it? Yes, actually, I can. You know, and and I manage in my life, and I don't have a smartphone, and I don't want to be available twenty four seven. Yeah, I don't want to be attached to that thing. Yeah. So uh- it's quite freeing. You. Figure out what you really need and what you don't. Well, you just went right to what I was going to ask you about. Because a question, you know, I, I talk to a lot of, uh, both in my personal life and in, in my public life, I talk to a lot of Buddhist teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and a question that's been posed to me often, as one that I might mull is, for myself, is what is enough? How much is enough? <laughs> and I wonder if you have any thoughts on how we can go about considering that. There is never enough. Yeah. Whatever you have, it's never enough. We don't have enough love. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough appreciation. We don't have enough fame. There is never enough. Yeah. When you live your life from that point of view, from just being concerned with only things of this life, there is never enough. So my philosophy is, you make what you have enough. Then you have enough. It's enough. Yeah. And so if my revenue, go, our family revenue goes down and we have to make a bunch of sacrifices, maybe uh, put our child in a different school or, um, uh, you know, maybe don't have so much takeout or whatever. It's just like that's enough. Yeah. Still with that's my family. Okay. That's okay. Do you need to eat takeout every night? No, I don't. I'm just pulling random. Yeah, uh, but you know, yes. yeah, but uh, just all those things. I I had one student, and she had two or three kids, and was unemployed at that time. And one night, she really didn't have enough money for the for dinner for the kids, so they had a picnic at home, sitting around the the fireplace. Um, you know, making PB&J sandwiches. And she said they had a great time because they made it like this special thing of, you know, we're having a family picnic with PB&J. And it was a wonderful opportunity, you know, much better than going out to some fancy restaurant with her kids. Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised sometimes what... um, the creativity that can come out and the connection among people that can come out when you don't have all this stuff. 
Because look at it right now. What do people do? You spend your time on the phone making appointments to meet your friends. You go out for coffee or tea or whatever with your friends. What's the first thing everybody does? They take out their phone and put it in front of them. So everybody's sitting there with their phone, which they keep checking every few minutes. They don't really communicate with the people they're with because they're too busy looking at their phone. And even if they don't have any messages, they kind of make like they had messages because if you don't have it, then you don't have a life and you're nobody. Right, you're not getting enough attention. Yeah. And so here it is. You made effort to be together with these this group of people that you like, and then you're not really with them because you're all looking at your phones. You don't look people in the eye. You don't really connect with them. You're all about creating a face and an image. Not all about it, but, you know, a good amount of time into creating a face and image instead of really listening to people. So, you know, when you die, what I never heard of anybody at the time of death saying, I should have worked more overtime. Or I should have done a better job on Instagram. Yeah. Or I should have made more money. You know, what is the thing that people regret when they die? Yeah. Uh, Having spent a reasonable amount of time around people who are dying, um, I think they regret things having to do with their relationships. Yeah. That's exactly it, isn't it? Yeah. Because of getting angry, because of having an uncontrolled mind and saying and doing things that harmed others. That's what people regret. So if we spend our time working on ourselves so we don't do those things, then our life is so much peaceful when we're alive. And when we die, no regret. And again, you are of the belief that this whole approach to life is doable for lay people as well. They say. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen it? I think it's harder for lay people, but they say it's doable. Anyway, it's not a doable or undoable thing. Everything is, is, you know, we have light switches on or off. Spiritual practice is not on and off. Spectrum. It's a spectrum. Yeah. So we all do what we're capable of doing. And that is good enough. Yeah. That's one of the things we have on our mirror at the Abbey. One of my teachers called everybody dear. And one of the things he said to us so often was good enough, dear. Who you are is good enough. What you have is good enough. What you do is good enough. You know, and that's an antidote to that mind, you know, that is that high achiever pushing, I've got to, you know, be somebody more than I am and, you know, that kind of life. It's like, it's good enough. Now, let's connect with people. Before I let you go, I uh, because I didn't, this conversation, I had a kind of plan going in and I <laughs> threw it out. Um, but you, you did write a book called The 
compassionate kitchen. Kitchen, yes. Uh, um, uh-huh. So one of the things that I I struggle a lot with, if I'm being honest, is uh, and I th- I've talked about it on the show before. Um, uh, overeating mm-hmm. or getting in my head about allegedly overeating. Mm. Um, so what are you? And I think I think I'm not alone. And also maybe. And I'll add another thing on here is, uh, is maybe not being so mindful while eating. Mm. So that's that's a lot to throw at you. Um, what what? Are you, and I know you wrote a whole book about it, so you you have a lot to say. So I, I feel <laughs> guilty just throwing it out there in an open ended way. But can you just free associate on on what I just said? Okay. Um, one thing that that I that is emphasized in the book is to. To put our eating in proper context, okay? And so uh, I talk about five um, contemplations before we eat. And, and the first one is just thinking about all the causes and conditions that came into our receiving our food, okay? So as a monastic... I mean, I eat because of the generosity of other people. We don't buy any food where I live. We eat only the food that people give us. Yeah. Even if you're lay people, you work, person, you work for a living, you know, don't think this is my money. I'm spending it because your money came from other people. They gave it to you. Yeah. Your food, where did it come from? Boy, there's a lot of people who worked to get our food. Yeah. And if we think nowadays, yeah, my friend, one of our nuns is, is from Germany. She said that one, one store in Germany, they took out all the food that was not made in Germany. And the store had very little left in it. Can you imagine in this country if we took out everything that wasn't grown in another country? Or in our stores, if we took out everything that wasn't made in another country. (laughs) So we think, I mean, how many people in what kind of conditions worked and were eating off of their labor and how kind they are? Now, somebody could say, well, they didn't grow the food just for me. They did it to make money. That's okay. The bottom line is if they didn't do it, I wouldn't eat. Yeah. So when you eat, you feel connected to so many other living beings. Can that can that slow you down while you're eating? In other words, slow you down in a positive way? Yeah. Yeah. Because you think about that. And then and then you think about, well, what what is the state of mind I'm eating? And what kind of state of mind do I have during the day? Yeah. If I'm accepting other people's generosity, I want to improve the state of my mind. Yeah. And why am I eating? I'm eating to nourish my body. That's the purpose. And why do I want to nourish my body? It's not for strength and good looks. It's so that I can practice the path and so that I can uh, do activities that are beneficial for other people. Yeah. So I'm keeping my body alive, but not just because, you know, I, I, I'm so important and I want to look good, 
but because I have some potential to use my life in a beneficial way for others. So this goes back to motivation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like there's a lot more to say on this. Um, I almost regret bringing it up because we should probably make it the subject of another podcast. Uh, maybe we will. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have to ironically go to lunch. So oh, okay. I, I don't want to I don't want to take too. And I also we're. We're coming to the end of our allotted time anyway. But bef- as as we close, can you um, uh, do something that may run against your um, training, which is be a little self-promotional and find out – and l- tell us the names of some of your books and where can we learn more about you and your Abbey, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, the Abbey's name is Shravasti Abbey, S-R-A-V-A. S-T-I. It's the name of a place in, in India where the Buddha spent 25 uh, summer retreats. So it's in uh, Newport, Washington. Uh, people can look at shravasti.org and find us. I have my own website, tuptonchildren.org. I better spell that. <laughs> T-H-U-B-T-E-N-C-H-O-D-R. O N, okay, dot org, and there's uh, and we also have a YouTube channel uh, that's Shravasti Abbey, a Shravasti Abbey YouTube channel. So we have lots of material online, audio, video, written stuff. Um, in terms of books, you want me to name all of them? Um, I don't know, maybe name three. Th- three. Okay, so three that that I did myself because I've edited the and co-authored things with other people. But three I did myself, Open Heart, Clear Mind, uh, Buddhism for Beginners, Taming the Mind, Working with Anger. That's one people may like. That's four. Yeah, that's four. That's fine. I'm well, you told me you told me to sub- promote myself. So. <laughs> I went, I did more than See you gave me. Starts feeling good when you okay. get going. So then there's the Compassionate Kitchen <laughs> yeah. is the one on food, and then there's another one called uh, Awaken Every Day, that is uh, has short uh, passages for every day of the year that you can kind of read and give you something to comp- contemplate during the day. Yeah, and the, the, you can I promote myself some more? Yeah, go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, this time I'm promoting His Holiness because we're doing a series of books together, and so uh, it's published by Wisdom Publication. So there's four books out in this series so far: uh, Approaching the Buddhist Path, Foundation of Buddhist Practice, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. Following in the Buddha's footsteps. And the next volume is In Praise of Great Compassion. So you'll want to read that one if you're writing about compassion. Mm-hmm. I've gotten a lot out of this conversation. Thank mm. you very much. I think a lot everybody will. So thank you so much. Good. I hope so. Yeah, And then also for compassion, if people are interested, I did a, um, a book with uh, a psychology professor. Oh. Yeah. And uh, at Eastern Washington University, Russell Colts, and uh, we wrote a book called uh, "What Did We Call It?" Living, because the, the, it was published in UK in one title, "Living with an Open Heart," and in the States it was published as 
uh, an open-hearted life. Mm. And it's a book about compassion from a psychological viewpoint and a Buddhist viewpoint. But it's uh, written secular, as in a secular way. In other words, <clears throat> there's no talk about rebirth or anything in it. Thank you again for sure. Sure. My Great pleasure. Job. All right. I got a lot out of that chat. Lipton children really appreciate her coming in. Let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. This is Adam. I've been uh, meditating for about three years, and I understand the concept of trying to be present and in the moment. And when my mind wanders, I bring my attention back to the object of focus and begin again. I'll typically meditate for about 10 to 15 minutes a day, but while I'm in the act, I'm doing fine. However, once the chimes sound and I hop up to resume my day, I often forget to be mindful or present during the course of the day. I know my practice has helped me realize that pause between a reaction and a response, so I know it's working. But do you have any suggestions for how to remember to be mindful during the course of the day? I often find myself looking back on the day and wondering if I was present at all. Thanks for your guidance on this one. Uh, This is a great question. I've struggled with this a lot. So I'll answer just from a personal perspective um, a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, the the conversation we just heard was with uh, Thubton Children I mean, the, the idea that we could set an intention in the beginning of the day and, you know, maybe the intention is, that can I be as mindful as possible today? I think that could be useful. And again, I know it sounds a little, you know, the idea of I, I just hear in my in my own inner echo chamber this a little bit of resistance, the idea of setting an attention. It, it sounds a little, I don't know. I don't know. But it, anyway, I still think, you know, first thing you wait, when you wake up in the morning or as you're maybe you don't I sometimes don't remember one of my either when my alarm goes off or my eyes open in the morning. Sometimes I don't remember to do this. But maybe, you know, I catch myself in the first 10, 15 minutes of the day. I'm like, oh, yeah. All right. Well, what's my what's my little goal today? And maybe it's to be as mindful as possible, to wake up as much as possible. Another might be just to be, you know, not a jerk, uh, which is something I continue to struggle with. So I, I'm intrigued by that. The other thing is, uh, you know, first of all, I think that, that in your answer, in your question, I hear already that you're making a lot of progress. First of all, you're doing the daily practice. And the fact that you're noticing yourself on autopilot or being mindless throughout the rest of the day is a form of mindfulness. That noticing is the waking up. I think what's I, I suspect what may be happening is something that often happens for me, which is I notice and then I self-flagellate. And so I go back right into mindlessness. But you can notice and maybe reflexively you'll have a little self-flagellation that you can't really do much about. But then you can kind of train yourself over time to like, oh, yeah, yeah, wait, uh, I, I'm I'm actually awake. This is an opportunity. And I, I just find that that this is a skill that develops on its own. Just as you have the desire to do it, like to me, I, as far as I can tell, the waking up is kind of of a, mis- a mysterious process. I don't quite understand how it happens, but you can you can increase the odds that you will wake up by having your daily practice and then having the intention to do it, and then kind of celebrating when you notice it because you kind of disincentivize yourself to wake up if every time you do it you're punishing yourself by launching into a story of what a horrible meditator you are or whatever, um, then the mind, what, 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 what incentive does the mind have to wake up? So I guess that's just a long, long way of saying keep doing what you're doing, and I suspect you'll find yourself waking up with more and more frequency. And, you know, there may be um, little 
hacks you can put through throughout your day. I remember when I was training to be a, a hospice volunteer, one of my teachers, Chodo, who is, if you scroll back in this podcast feed, he was on, a, he and his husband were on, a, a before they got married, actually, was they were on this podcast way, 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 way back in the beginning. Uh, his husband's name is Koshin. And Chodo was saying that one little thing he has is every time he walked into a new room where a patient was, he would just touch the uh, outline of the door. What's the name of that? The, anyway, he was crossing the threshold. He would touch uh, the door. And that would just be – it was a habit he created that allowed him – that was a trigger to him to wake up. And so little – this is going to sound a little superficial, but little hacks like that can also be nice to play with. Anyway, I think you're on the right road. So I appreciate the question and keep it up. Let's do voicemail number two. Hi, Dan. My name is Glenn. I've been doing the meditation app for about six months. Very enjoyable. I find myself using the meditation when um, I'm driving, uh, walking, and uh, just uh, getting ready. Uh, I don't find myself doing the actual sitting in a um, meditation, as you would say, on the cushion. Is that something I should strive for? Um, I feel I'm getting quite a bit out of uh, the, you know, activity part of meditation and focusing and following the app, but I'm wondering if I'm not getting the full complete by getting to the cushion. Thanks for your response. I wanted, I thought it would be cool to include these two questions together because they're in many ways obviously related. Um, first of all, thank you for being a subscriber to the app. There are a lot of us who work really hard to make that app excellent. And so I'm, it's just gratifying to hear that you're getting something out of it. Um, I'm loath to be too, you know, dogmatic, uh, you know, to lecture you about the right way to do this. The fact that you're tuning in and uh, using the meditations to bring mindfulness in your daily life, I think is excellent. So what I say, I say kind of with medium to low conviction, or I would just Hold whatever I'm saying lightly, which is I, I really do think that the formal seated or walking practice – actually, there are, as you may know, four formal, quote-unquote, formal ways to practice. The word formal is a little heavy, but um, anyway, that's the best I can do right now. But there are four formal ways to practice. One is seated. The other is walking. There's also lying down or standing. Um, and that doing one thing, in other words – Bringing my, doing just meditation or mindfulness practice as opposed to using it while you're walking, you know, walking to work, rather commuting, walking or driving or many of the other ways that we, we've got all these meditations on the app to, to integrate it into parts of your day, which I consider sort of on the go or free range meditation. I think the formal meditation boosts your ability to do the informal meditation. And it can create a really self-reinforcing cycle. So, um, you know, this links back, of course, to the first question. How how can you bring mindfulness to as much of the day as possible? Because that's what both of you, you guys are asking for, essentially. And to me, and just in my experience, and of one here, um, the having the formal practice really fuels my ability to be mindful the rest of the time to find to wake up and then really practicing not only pr creating the conditions where I'm more likely to wake up but also 
getting my pulling myself out of the the nosedive when I notice that I uh, um, uh, have been mindless for a while and I'm tempted to beat myself up, which, as discussed, can create a kind of a sort of inner uh, lack of incentives to wake up at all. Just to notice, oh yeah, okay, so I just woke up. I've been mindless for a while, maybe a couple hours, and but here I am online at the grocery store with a bunch of bananas in my hand, and and I notice that I've I've been on a long st- cascade of mindlessness, and then I notice very quickly, even out of my control, I start to beat myself up, and then it kind of kicks in. Oh no, no, I can drop all of that and just be with where I am right now, and so just over time, I've just find I just find that this. These two practices, the the quote unquote formal practice interwoven with the desire and intention to, and I know desire is a loaded word, but the intention to be as mindful as possible throughout the rest of my day, it just, it's a skill that you develop over time and you're never like, I don't know anybody who's perfect at it, but you can, you can keep getting better. And I think the results are incredibly meaningful. Um, Shinzen Young, the great meditation teacher who's been on the show has, has talked about the fact that when you're more mindful, it expands your life, not, uh, not your life expectancy. You may live for the same amount of time chronology, but you will be awake for more of it, more of it. And in, in that way, you, you get more life. Okay. I've probably said enough. Uh, thank you for those excellent questions. Anybody else who wants to, to to leave us a voicemail, our number is 646-883-8326, 646-883-8326. We'll put that number in the show notes. Big thanks to everybody who makes this podcast possible. There are a lot of folks who work really hard on it, just to name a few names. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omohundro, and Brittany, who's uh, working the boards as I record this right now. Big thanks to all of you. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new show. See you then. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. 
Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.